welcome to podcast number 10 here on Your Voice of the Arts. Yours truly, Joe Weber, your host as usual. And today we're going to feature another wonderful short story by Irish writer Frank O'Connor. This one's called The Genius. But right now we're going to hear a poem read by the author Richard Wilbur. It's called The Last One. It's called The Last One. Well, they'd made up their minds to be everywhere, because why not? Everywhere was theirs because they thought so. They with two leaves, they whom the birds despise. In the middle of stones, they made up their minds. They started to cut. Well, they cut everything, because why not? Everything was theirs because they thought so. It fell into its shadows, and they took both away. Some to have, some for burning. Well, cutting everything, they came to the water. They came to the end of the day, there was one left standing. They would cut it tomorrow, they went away. The night gathered in the last branches. The shadow of the night gathered in the shadow on the water. The night and the shadow put on the same head. And it said now. Well, in the morning, they cut the last one. Like the others, the last one fell into its shadow. It fell into its shadow on the water. They took it away, its shadow stayed on the water. Well, they shrugged, they started trying to get the shadow away. They cut right to the ground, the shadow stayed whole. They laid boards on it, the shadow came out on top. They shone lights on it, the shadow got blacker and clearer. They exploded the water, the shadow rocked. They built a huge fire on the roots. They sent up black smoke between the shadow and the sun. The new shadow flowed without changing the old one. They shrugged, they went away to get stones. They came back, the shadow was growing. They started setting up stones, it was growing. They looked the other way, it went on growing. They decided they would make a stone out of it. They took stones to the water, they poured them into the shadow. They poured them in, they poured them in, the stones vanished. The shadow was not filled, it went on growing. That was one day. The next day was just the same, it went on growing. They did all the same things, it was just the same. They decided to take its water from under it. They took away water, they took it away, the water went down. The shadow stayed where it was before. It went on growing, it grew onto the land. They started to scrape the shadow with machines. When it touched the machines, it stayed on them. They started to beat the shadow with sticks. Where it touched the sticks, it stayed on them. They started to beat the shadow with hands. Where it touched the hands, it stayed on them. That was another day. Well, the next day started about the same. It went on growing. They pushed lights into the shadow. Where the shadow got onto them, they went out. They began to stomp on the edge. You got their feet. And when it got their feet, they fell down. It got into eyes. The eyes went blind. The ones that fell down, it grew over and they vanished. The ones that went blind and walked into it vanished. The ones that could see and stood still, it swallowed their shadows. Then it swallowed them too, and they vanished. Well, the others ran. The ones that were left went away to live if it would let them. They went as far as they could, the lucky ones with their shadows.
Music from Sergei Prokofiev's ballet, Romeo and Juliet. We heard the dance of the knights. And before that, we heard Richard Wilbur reading his poem, The Last One, a poem about man's hubris, about the destruction, the degradation of the environment. And in that same vein, now we're going to hear Jack Handy talking about his concern for the possible extinction of a very important species. Reintroducing Me to My Habitat by Jack Handy. I would like to take this opportunity to urge conservation-minded people everywhere to pressure the government for the reintroduction of me to my native habitat. My native habitat, of course, is the desert southwest, where I used to roam wild and free. But sadly, I no longer exist there. For several years, I have been largely confined to a small two-bedroom apartment in the Chelsea section of Manhattan. It is clear that I do not belong here, as my neighbors will tell you. I am still frightened by car horns, and the fancy Eastern food I am fed is at odds with my natural diet of enchiladas and ginger snaps. Often, I can be found pacing mindlessly back and forth in my cramped office, which I am told is a sign that I am insane. Occasionally, there are scattered sightings of me in my old habitat, shooting a wet straw wrapper at someone's kid in a restaurant in Santa Fe, then denying it, doing my funny cowboy dance at a party in Silver City until people make me stop, but these cannot be confirmed. For all intents and purposes, I have been eliminated from my former range, the Rio Grande Valley. I used to be found from El Paso and Juarez in the south all the way up to Taos and sometimes beyond, if I missed the turnoff to Taos. Once I filled a vital role in the ecosystem, I would prey primarily on the weak and the old, who were usually the only ones who would hire me. Then when their businesses went under, they were removed from the system as nature intended. My world was in harmony, but as often happens, man intervened. Ranchers would drive me from their lands when they caught me throwing a keg party barbecue, maybe using one of their cows. Divorce and job dismissals took their toll. I found I could not coexist with my creditors. At one point, public sentiment against me was so strong that I was considered vermin and a pest. But now I think attitudes are changing. People don't automatically want to shoot me like they used to. This is mainly because of my re-education efforts and because they haven't seen me for a long time. The truth about me is finally starting to emerge. For instance, there is no record of me ever attacking a human unless he was much, much smaller than me. The old myths are starting to die off, such as the one that if you leave your campsite unattended, I will sneak in and steal beer and food from your cooler and maybe knock down your tent. The time to act is now. I am not getting any younger, and my rent here in New York could go up at any time. Also, I could be wiped out by the stock market. I have been conducting a captive breeding program with my wife, but so far, it has yielded no offspring. The reason I found out is that my wife uses contraceptives, which I guess I knew. All of these factors make it imperative that you write the government and tell them to reintroduce me via first-class airfare to my old habitat. With a generous per diem and a late-model car, I think I could once again fill my old niche. I would probably try to mate with females of my species unless my wife found out and I would be willing to keep a journal of what I eat and what TV shows I watch so that more may be learned about my ways. 
I will, if necessary, wear a radio collar. I am willing to do these things because I believe that until people can sit around a desert campfire and go, shh, hear that? And then listen for the plaintive howl of me, we as a society have lost something. You've been listening to Reintroducing Me to My Habitat from a collection called What I'd Say to the Martians, written by Jack Handy.
Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker, among others, with a little tune called I'll Remember April, here on podcast number 10 with your host, Joe Weber, here on The Voice of the Arts. And as promised, it's time now for our short story. This is one written by Frank O'Connor called The Genius. The Genius, a short story by Frank O'Connor. Some kids are sissies by nature, but I was a sissy by conviction. Mother had told me about geniuses, and I wanted to be one. I could see for myself that fighting, as well as being sinful, was dangerous. The kids round the barrack where I lived were always fighting. Mother said they were savages, that I needed proper friends, and that once I was old enough to go to school, I would meet them. My way, when someone wanted to fight and I could not get away, was to climb on the nearest wall and argue like hell in a shrill voice about our blessed Lord and good manners. This was a way of attracting attention, and it usually worked because the enemy, having stared incredulously at me for several minutes, wondering if he would have time to hammer my head on the pavement before someone came out to him, yelled something like, blooming sissy, and went away in disgust. I didn't like being called a sissy, but I preferred it to fighting. I felt very like one of those poor mongrels who slunk through our neighborhood and took to their heels when anyone came near them, and I always tried to make friends with them. I toyed with games and enjoyed kicking a ball gently before me along the pavement till I discovered that any boy who joined me grew violent and started to shoulder me out of the way. I preferred little girls because they didn't fight so much but otherwise I found them insipid and lacking in any solid basis of information. The only women I cared for were grown-ups, and my most intimate friend was an old washerwoman called Miss Cooney, who had been in the lunatic asylum and was very religious. It was she who had told me all about dogs. She would run a mile after anyone she saw hurting an animal and even went to the police about them. But the police knew she was mad and paid no attention. She was a sad-looking woman with gray hair, high cheekbones, and toothless gums. While she ironed, I would sit for hours in the steaming, damp kitchen, turning over the pages of her religious books. She was fond of me, too, and told me she was sure I would be a priest. I agreed that I might be a bishop, but she didn't seem to think so highly of bishops. I told her there were so many other things I might be that I couldn't make up my mind, but she only smiled at this. Miss Cooney thought there was only one thing a genius could be, and that was a priest. On the whole, I thought an explorer was what I would be. Our house was in a square between two roads, one terraced above the other, and I could leave home, follow the upper road for a mile past the barrack, turn left on any of the intervening roads and lanes, and return almost without leaving the pavement. It was astonishing what valuable information you could pick up on a trip like that. When I came home, I wrote down my adventures in a book called The Voyages of Johnson Martin, with many maps and illustrations, Irishtown University Press. I was also compiling the Irishtown University Songbook for use in schools and institutions by Johnson Martin, which had the words and music of my favorite songs. I could not read music yet, but I copied it from anything that came handy, preferring staff to solfa because it looked better on the page but I still wasn't sure what I would be. All I knew was that I intended to be famous and have a statue put up to me near that of Father Matthew in Patrick Street, 
Father Matthew was called the Apostle of Temperance, but I didn't think much of temperance. So far, our town hadn't a proper genius, and I intended to supply the deficiency. My work continued to bring home to me the great gaps in my knowledge. Mother understood my difficulty and worried herself endlessly finding answers to my questions. But neither she nor Miss Cooney had a great store of the sort of information I needed, and Father was more a hindrance than a help. He was talkative enough about the subjects that interested himself, but they did not greatly interest me. Ballybeg, he would say brightly, Market Town, population 648, nearest station, Rathkeel. He was also forthcoming enough about other things, but later Mother would take me aside and explain that he was only joking again. This made me mad because I never knew when he was joking and when he wasn't. I can see now, of course, that he didn't really like me. It was not the poor man's fault. He had never expected to be the father of a genius, and it filled him with forebodings. He looked round him at all his contemporaries, who had normal, bloodthirsty, illiterate children, and shuddered at the thought that I would never be good for anything but being a genius. To give him his due, it wasn't himself he worried about, but there had never been anything like it in the family before, and he dreaded the shame of it. He would come in from the front door with his cap over his eyes and his hands in his trouser pockets and stare moodily at me while I sat at the kitchen table, surrounded by papers, producing fresh maps and illustrations from my book of voyages, or copying the music of the minstrel boy. Why can't you go out and play with the horgans, he would ask, trying to make it sound attractive. I don't like the horgans, Daddy, I would reply politely. Well, what's wrong with them, he would ask testily. They're fine, manly young fellows. They're always fighting, Daddy. And what harm is fighting? Can't you fight them back? I don't like fighting, Daddy, thank you, I would say, still with perfect politeness. The child is right, Mother would say, coming to my defense. I don't know what sort those children are. Ah, you've got them as bad as yourself, Father would snort and stalk to the front door again to scald his heart with thoughts of the nice natural son he might have had if only he hadn't married the wrong woman. Granny had always said Mother was the wrong woman for him, and now she was being proved right. She was being proved so right that the poor man couldn't keep his eyes off me, waiting for the insanity to break out. One of the things he didn't like was my opera house. The opera house was a cardboard box I had mounted on two chairs in the dark hallway. It had a proscenium cut in it, and I had painted some backdrops of mountain and sea with wings that represented trees and rocks. The characters were pictures cut out, mounted, and colored, and moved on bits of stick. It was lit with candles for which I had made colored screens that were greased so that they were transparent and I made up operas from storybooks and bits of songs. I was singing a passionate duet for two of the characters while twiddling the screens to produce the effect of moonlight when one of the screens caught fire and everything went up in a mass of flames. I screamed and Father came to stamp out the blaze, and he cursed me till even Mother lost her temper with him and told him he was worse than six children, after which he wouldn't speak to her for a week. Another time, I was so impressed with a lame teacher I knew that I decided to have a lame leg myself, and there was hell in the home for days, because Mother had no difficulty at all in seeing that my foot was already out of shape, while Father only looked at it and sniffed contemptuously. I was furious with him, and Mother decided he wasn't much better than a monster. 
They quarreled for days over that until it became quite an embarrassment to me because though I was bored stiff with limping, I felt I should be letting her down by getting better. When I went down the square lurching from side to side, Father stood at the gate looking after me with a malicious knowing smile, and when I had discarded my limp, the way he mocked Mother was positively disgusting. As I say, they squabbled endlessly about what I should be told. Father was for telling me nothing. But Mick, Mother would say earnestly, the child must learn. He'll learn soon enough when he goes to school, he snarled. Why do you be always at him putting ideas into his head? Isn't he bad enough? I'd sooner the boy would grow up a bit natural. But either Mother didn't like children to be natural, or she thought I was natural enough as I was. Women, of course, don't object to geniuses half as much as men do. I suppose they find them a relief. Now, one of the things I wanted badly to know was where babies came from, but this was something that no one seemed to be able to explain to me. When I asked Mother, she got upset and talked about birds and flowers, and I decided that if she had ever known, she must have forgotten it and was ashamed to say so. Miss Cooney, when I asked her, only smiled wistfully and said, You'll know about it soon enough, child. But Miss Cooney, I said with great dignity, I have to know now it's for my work, you see. Keep your innocence while you can, child, she said in the same tone. Soon enough the world will rob you of it, and once tis gone, tis gone forever. But whatever the world wanted to rob me of, it was welcome to it from my point of view, if only I could get a few facts to work on. I appealed to Father, and he told me that babies were dropped out of airplanes, and if you caught one, you could keep it. By parachute, I asked. But he only looked pained and said, Oh, no, you don't want to begin by spoiling them. Afterwards, Mother took me aside again and explained that he was only joking. I went quite dotty with rage and told her that one of these days he would go too far with his jokes. All the same, it was a great worry to Mother. It wasn't every mother who had a genius for a son, and she dreaded that she might be wronging me. She suggested timidly to father that he should tell me something about it, and he danced with rage. I heard them because I was supposed to be playing with the opera house upstairs at the time. He said she was going out of her mind and that she was driving me out of my mind as well. She was very upset because she had considerable respect for his judgment. At the same time, when it was a matter of duty, she could be very, very obstinate. It was a heavy responsibility, and she disliked it intensely. A deeply pious woman who never mentioned the subject at all to anybody, if she could avoid it. But it had to be done. She took an awful long time over it. It was a summer day, and we were sitting on the bank of a stream in the glen. But at last I managed to detach the fact that mummies had an engine in their tummies and Daddy's had a starting handle that made it work. And once it started, it went on until it made a baby. Now that certainly explained an awful lot. I had not understood up to this, for instance, why fathers were necessary, and why mother had buffers on her chest while father had none. It made her almost as interesting as a locomotive. And for days I went around deploring my own rotten luck that I wasn't a girl and couldn't have an engine and buffers instead of a measly old starting handle like father. Soon afterwards, I went to school and disliked it intensely. I was too small to be moved up to the big boys, and the other infants were still at the stage of spelling cat and dog. I tried to tell the old teacher about my work, 
but she only smiled and said, Hush, Larry. I hated being told to hush. Father was always saying it to me. One day, I was standing at the playground gate feeling very lonely and dissatisfied when a tall girl from the senior girls' school spoke to me. She had a plump, dark face and black pigtails. What's your name, little boy, she asked. I told her. Is this your first time at school, she asked. Yes. And do you like it? No, I hate it, I replied gravely. The children can't spell and the old woman talks too much. Then I talked myself for a change, and she listened attentively while I told her about myself, my voyages, my books, and the time of the trains from all the city stations. As she seemed so interested, I told her I would meet her after school and tell her some more. I was as good as my word. When I had eaten my lunch, instead of going on further voyages, I went back to the girls' school and waited for her to come out. She seemed pleased to see me because she took my hand and brought me home with her. She lived up Gardner's Hill, a steep, demure suburban road with trees that overhung the walls at either side. She lived in a small house on top of the hill and was one of a family of three girls. Her little brother, John Joe, had been killed the previous year by a car. Look at what I brought home with me, she said when we went into the kitchen. And her mother, a tall, thin woman, made a great fuss of me and wanted me to have my dinner with Una. That was the girl's name. I didn't take anything, but while she ate, I sat by the range and told her mother about myself. She seemed to like it as much as Una, and when dinner was over, Una took me out in the fields behind the house for a walk. When I went home at tea time, mother was delighted. Ah, she said, I knew you wouldn't be long making nice friends at school. It's about time for you, the dear knows. I felt much the same about it, and every fine day at three, I waited for Una outside the school. When it rained and Mother would not let me out, I was miserable. One day, while I was waiting for her, there were two senior girls outside the gate. Your girl isn't out yet, Larry, said one with a giggle. And do you mean to tell me Larry has a girl, the other asked with a shocked air. Oh, yes, said the first. Una Dwyer is Larry's girl. He goes with Una, don't you, Larry? I replied politely that I did, but in fact I was seriously alarmed. I had not realized that Una would be considered my girl. It had never happened to me before, and I had not understood that my waiting for her would be regarded in such a grave light. Now I think the girls were probably right anyhow, for that is always the way it has been with me. A woman has only to shut up and let me talk long enough for me to fall head and ears in love with her. But then I did not recognize the symptoms. All I knew was that going with somebody meant you intended to marry them. I had always planned on marrying Mother. Now it seemed as if I was expected to marry someone else, and I wasn't sure if I should like it or if, like football, it would prove to be one of those games that two people could not play without pushing. A couple of weeks later, I went to a party at Una's house. By this time, it was almost as much mine as theirs. All the girls liked me, and Mrs. Dwyer talked to me by the hour. I saw nothing unusual about this except a proper appreciation of geniuses. Una had warned me that I should be expected to sing, so I was ready for the occasion. I sang the Gregorian Credo, and some of the little girls laughed, but Mrs. Dwyer only looked at me fondly. I suppose you'll be a priest when you grow up, Larry, she asked. No, Mrs. Dwyer, I replied firmly. As a matter of fact, I intend to be a composer, 
Priests can't marry, you see, and I want to get married. That seemed to surprise her quite a bit. I was quite prepared to continue discussing my plans for the future, but all the children talked together. I was used to planning discussions so that they went on for a long time, but I found that whenever I began one in the Dwyer's, it was immediately interrupted, so that I found it hard to concentrate. Besides, all the children shouted, and Mrs. Dwyer, for all her gentleness, shouted with them and at them. At first, I was somewhat alarmed, but I soon saw that they meant no particular harm. And when the party ended, I was jumping up and down on the sofa, shrieking louder than anyone, while Una, in hysterics of giggling, encouraged me. She seemed to think I was the funniest thing ever. It was a moonlit November night, and lights were burning in the little cottages along the road when Una brought me home. On the road outside, she stopped uncertainly and said, This is where little John Joe was killed. There was nothing remarkable about the spot, and I saw no chance of acquiring any useful information. Was it a Ford or a Morris, I asked, more out of politeness than anything else. I don't know, she replied with smoldering anger. It was Donegan's old car. They can never look where they're going. Our Lord probably wanted him, I said perfunctorily. I dare say he did, Una replied, though she showed no particular conviction. That old fool Donegan, I could kill him whenever I think of it. You should get your mother to make you another, I suggested helpfully. Make me a what? Una exclaimed in consternation. Make you another brother, I repeated earnestly. It's quite easy, really. She has an engine in her tummy, and all your daddy has to do is to start it with his starting handle. Cripes, Una said and clapped her hand over her mouth in an explosion of giggles. Imagine me telling her that. But it's true, Una, I said obstinately. It only takes nine months. She could make you another little brother by next summer. Oh, Jay, exclaimed Una in another fit of giggles. Who told you all that? Mummy did. Didn't your mother tell you? Oh, she says you buy them from Nurse Daly, said Una and began to giggle again. I wouldn't really believe that, I said with as much dignity as I could muster. But the truth was, I felt I had made a fool of myself again. I realized now that I had never been convinced by Mother's explanation. It was too simple. If there was anything that woman could get wrong, she did so without fail. And it upset me, because for the first time, I found myself wanting to make a really good impression. The Dwyers had managed to convince me that whatever else I wanted to be, I did not want to be a priest. I didn't even want to be an explorer, a career which would take me away for long periods from my wife and family. I was prepared to be a composer and nothing but a composer. That night in bed, I sounded mother on the subject of marriage. I tried to be tactful because it had always been agreed between us that I should marry her, and I did not wish her to see that my feelings had changed. Mummy, I asked, if a gentleman asks a lady to marry him, what does he say? Oh, she replied shortly, some of them say a lot. They say more than they mean. She was so irritable that I guessed she had divined my secret, and I felt really sorry for her. If a gentleman said, excuse me, will you marry me? Would that be all right? I persisted. Ah, well, he'd have to tell her first that he was fond of her, said mother who, no matter what she felt, could never bring herself to deceive me on any major issue. But about the other matter, I saw that it was hopeless to ask her any more. 
For days, I made the most pertinacious inquiries at school and received some startling information. One boy had actually come floating down on a snowflake wearing a bright blue dress, but to his chagrin and mine, the dress had been given away to a poor child in the North Main Street. I grieved long and deeply over this wanton destruction of evidence. The balance of opinion favored Mrs. Dwyer's solution, but of the theory of engines and starting handles, no one in the school had ever heard. That theory might have been all right when Mother was a girl, but it was now definitely out of fashion. And because of it, I had been exposed to ridicule before the family whose good opinion I valued most. It was hard enough to keep up my dignity with a girl who was doing algebra while I hadn't gotten beyond long division without falling into childish errors that made her laugh. That is another thing I still cannot stand, being made fun of by women. Once they begin, they never stop. Once, when we were going up Gardner's Hill together after school, she stopped to look at a baby in a pram. The baby grinned at her and she gave him her finger to suck. He waved his fists and sucked like mad, and she went off into giggles again. I suppose that was another engine, she said. Four times, at least, she mentioned my silliness, twice in front of other girls, and each time, though I pretended to ignore it, I was pierced to the heart. It made me determined not to be exposed again. Once Mother asked Una and her younger sister Joan to tea, and all the time I was in an agony of self-consciousness, dreading what she would say next. I felt that a woman who had said such things about babies was capable of anything. Then the talk turned on the death of little John Joe, and it all flowed back into my mind on a wave of mortification. I made two efforts to change the conversation, but Mother returned to it. She was full of pity for the Dwyers, full of sympathy for their little boy, and had almost reduced herself to tears. Finally, I got up and ordered Una and Joan to play with me. Then Mother got angry. For goodness sake, Larry, let the children finish their tea, she snapped. It's all right, Mrs. Delaney, Una said good-naturedly. I'll go with them. Nonsense, Una, Mother said sharply. Finish your tea and go on with what you were saying. It's a wonder to me your poor mother didn't go out of her mind. How can they let people like that drive cars? At this, I set up a loud wail. At any moment now, I felt she was going to get on to babies and advise Una about what her mother ought to do. Will you behave yourself, Larry, Mother said in a quivering voice. What's come over you in the past few weeks? You used to have such nice manners, and now look at you. A little corner boy, I'm ashamed of you. How could she know what had come over me? How could she realize that I was imagining the family circle in the Dwyer's house and Una between fits of laughter describing my old-fashioned mother who still talked about babies coming out of people's stomachs? It must have been real love, for I had never known true love in which I wasn't ashamed of mother. And she knew it and was hurt. I still enjoyed going home with Una in the afternoons, and while she ate her dinner I sat at the piano and pretended to play my own compositions. But whenever she called at our house for me, I grabbed her by the hand and tried to drag her away so that she and Mother wouldn't start talking. Ah, oh, I'm disgusted with you, Mother said one day. One would think you were ashamed of me in front of that little girl. I'll engage she doesn't treat her mother like that. Then one day I was waiting for Una at the school gate as usual. Another boy was waiting there as well, one of the seniors. When he heard the screams of the school breaking up, he strolled away and stationed himself at the foot of the hill by the crossroads. 
Then Una herself came rushing out in her wide-brimmed felt hat, swinging her satchel, and approached me with a conspiratorial air. Oh, Larry, guess what's happened, she whispered. I can't bring you home with me today. I'll come down and see you during the week, though. Will that do? Yes, thank you, I said in a dead, cold voice. Even at the most tragic moment of my life, I could be nothing but polite. I watched her scamper down the hill to where the big boy was waiting. He looked over his shoulder with a grin, and then the two of them went off together. Instead of following them, I went back up the hill alone and stood leaning over the quarry wall, looking at the roadway and the valley of the city beneath me. I knew this was the end. I was too young to marry Una. I didn't know where babies came from, and I didn't understand algebra. The fellow she had gone home with probably knew everything about both. I was full of gloom and revengeful thoughts. I, who had considered it sinful and dangerous to fight, was now regretting that I hadn't gone after him to batter his teeth and jump on his face. It wouldn't even have mattered to me that I was too young and weak and that he would have done all the battering. I saw that love was a game that two people couldn't play at without pushing, just like football. I went home and, without saying a word, took out the work I had been neglecting so long. That, too, seemed to have lost its appeal. Moodily, I ruled five lines and began to trace the difficult sign of the treble clef. "'Didn't you see Una, Larry?' Mother asked in surprise, looking up from her sewing. "'No, Mummy,' I said, too full for speech. "'I hope it wasn't a falling out you had,' she asked in dismay, coming towards me. I put my head on my hands and sobbed. "'Never mind, child,' she murmured, running her hand through my hair. She was a bit old for you. You reminded her of her little brother that was killed, of course. That was why. You'll soon make new friends. Take my word for it. But I did not believe her. That evening there was no comfort for me. My great work meant nothing to me, and I knew it was all I would ever have. For all the difference it made, I might as well become a priest. I felt it was a poor, sad, lonesome thing, being nothing but a genius. Folks, that's going to wrap up podcast number 10. I hope you enjoyed that short story called The Genius by Frank O'Connor. This is your host, Joe Weber, saying so long here from the Voice of the Arts. Thanks for listening.